0: In, in uh, Revelation chapter 3, allow me to find my place and I will read. In, in verse 7 of chapter 3 until uh, verse 13, and the Word of God reads like this. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and none will open. I know your works. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the reading of his own word in our midst this evening. What a powerful, powerful word that Jesus gives to his church. This faithful church that had not compromised, that he will speak of as persevering through persecution. And for some context, the persecution that this church is receiving, which we saw picking up there in some of Jesus' harsh languages that they are a. It is the unbelieving Jews. Remember, in the first century, there was many Jews who were swept into the church by believing on Jesus Christ, their Messiah. But those who who enacted some of the most fierce and harsh persecution were, in fact, the unbelieving Jews. That they pursued the Christians out of Jerusalem. That they uh, they were not more, uh, more more evil in their attacks than Rome was. It just they were earlier on because they were vitriolic against those who they believed to be to be polluting the true faith. We see it come up here again. In Philadelphia, the main way of persecution, as with Smyrna, was that the the Jewish uh, population was persecuting the church. That is going to play a large part of uh, of our interpretation or the themes that Jesus speaks to this church, the background matters. The background of what he says himself, this is not postulation, but what Jesus says is their persecution at the hands of the Jews Forms a fair portion of where Jesus is coming from, where he starts quoting from when he starts giving his promises and his judgments. So let's look first at Jesus Christ, he who introduces himself in verse 7 here. He says, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. If you've been paying attention, you've realized, because I've said it every week. But when Jesus introduces himself he takes a portion of John's vision of him of Jesus out of chapter 1 and opens up a letter with a little bit of it. This is the first time that he doesn't do that. This time he picks it up out of Old Testament references particularly Isaiah but he doesn't quote chapter 1 because he's giving a very Old Testament themed letter. Uh, he is going to explicitly refer to things and quote from the old testament. So here's what he does call himself. He says the holy one, the true one. As I said, this letter will draw heavily on the letter on the prophecy of Isaiah. And what Jesus is saying in the language of the holy one, the true one, it is it is just a direct claim to divinity. Over 20 times in the book of Isaiah, the language of the holy one of Israel is used of Yahweh, their covenant God, the only true God. So when Jesus is saying, here, yeah, I am the holy one, the true one, we are seeing him self-repeating what has already been hinted at in previous passages of scripture. If you remember in Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 4, when the demons see Jesus, they cry out. They have a really good theology proper. They know, and they have a good Christology as well. They know that who they're looking at is Yahweh in flesh. So they cry out. What, are you to, what, are you, what have you come to do with us? The whole we know who you are, the Holy One of God. By the time you get to John chapter 6, verse 69, after Jesus' long sermon, Peter says something smart for once. He says in John chapter 6, verse 69, he says, We believe and we know who you are, the Holy One of God. Speaking to Jesus. So this language of the Holy One of God. In the Old Testament and in the Gospels is applied to the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God in flesh. But if we look in the book itself, in Revelation, in chapter 6, verse 10, it is, uh, these, this same title is used speaking of God as the sovereign one who will judge his enemies. So in chapter 6, verse 10, the language is, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, How long will you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, the same language is picked up here in chapter 3, where Jesus is called the Holy One and True One. And also later on in the verse, he's going to refer to his judgment on those who dwell on the earth. So for these two strands, I think that we can find uh, that, that in the language of the Holy and True One, it's not just that he's divine, but that he is divine God in role as judge over his enemies. And we can go further, because he also introduces himself as, well, 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 before we get to the keys, dialing into this idea of the true one is again, Old Testament language, not simply for factualness. It's not that Jesus is saying, I'm the one who speaks accurately, though that's true. Rather, what he is saying is that I am the genuine one. I am not just God, not Also, am I just true and factual God? I am the one true God. As language from Jeremiah 10 verse 10 gives us, he's talking about the the monotheistic nature of God, the exclusive revelation that the only way to worship God properly is through Jesus. Jesus said, and how offensive this would be to the Jews who who were offending and persecuting Philadelphia, Jesus said in his own lifetime, no one has the Father who rejects the Son. So Jesus is saying, "I am the true. I am the genuine. Any religion, even that bases itself on Old Testament, that rejects Jesus is not the true one." Jeremiah ten verse ten. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. So, the, for the Philadelphian Christians, hear the context. They're persecuted. The Jews are against them. The Jews are making all kinds of claims about what they're not worthy to be receiving because they're Christians instead of full-blooded Jews. And Jesus is saying, I am the one true God. I am the only one that can receive worship. I am the only way you know God. And I am the sovereign divine one who pours out judgment on those on earth. It's an amazing encouragement to Philadelphia. Those who had rejected the Messiah and instead rather chosen the system of the temple, the system of the outward display, the system of the old covenant which Peter said would not save them. Those who kept running back to that around Jesus and rejecting him and now persecuting his church, Jesus is saying, they are not the true ones. I am the true one. They are not genuine. I am genuine. And I, he says here, have the key of David who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens. This is, again, quotation right out of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, not hard to remember. Isaiah 22, verse 22, Isaiah prophesies from God, and and he's speaking about the fact that he will choose somebody to be a faithful and righteous secretary or steward over the finances of the kingdom. There had been a godless steward, there had been a godless financial minister, if you want to use that language, and and God was saying, I'm going to get rid of them, and I'm going to bring my righteous servant, Eliakim, into the position, is what he says, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. In other words, Eliakim was given responsibility over the royal storehouses. He was given the responsibility and the authority over the finances of the kingdom. Anything that he signed on, signed out on, to give money towards, money would go to it. No one could stop him. He had the authority. Anything that he wanted to pull money back from, now we're not, we're not sponsoring idolatry. We're not helping Egypt out. We're not doing those worldly carnal investments. Anything that he stopped would be stopped. And, and the kingdom's money would not go flowing to it. He had the authority to open and shut the door for the money of the house of David. The king's money. A few weeks ago in Thyatira, we learned that Jesus is the son of David, the promised king. And now we're seeing that Jesus is also the treasurer to the king. You don't need to divide power so that it doesn't corrupt when you're dealing with Jesus. It's not as if Jesus is the king, but he always has to ask Michael the archangel's permission if he wants to fund something here on earth, or if he wants to release some of the divine money in storehouses. No, no. Jesus is both king, and in this language, he's also the one who's responsible over the kingdom money. So what Philadelphia are being told is that Jesus doesn't share the power. The kingdom of Christ, in every essence and in every way, is under the authority of Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the sole monarch, the ruler of the kings on earth. While the the Jews had been claiming that God's kingdom would have no part with the Christians. It would have no part with Christ. So the Philadelphians have been told by by the the, the Jewish tradition that you can't have any part in God's kingdom. You're not full-blooded, circumcised, law-abiding Jews. And also, you're worshipping somebody who was hanged on a tree, proving that he was cursed from God. You're foolish, you're illegal, you're breaking God's commands, you're idolatrous if you worship that Christ, the Lord Jesus they would close off the kingdom to the Christians. Say, so you have no part in the kingdom of God. You're worshiping the wrong way. And here is Jesus saying, except for the fact that I'm the one with the door. I'm the one with the key, not you, people of earth. We have this all the time in our day. We will be, the Christians will be told, you're wrong because X, Y, Z. God can't be on your side because X, Y, Z. People have all of their authorities and we are the fools for listening to them. We're the fools for giving them any credence. Like like as if you were getting insulted because a toddler said something mean to you. As if you you changed a life course because a, a toddler misspoke and told you to do something or change career. That's what it's like when we listen to the voice of the world when the authority of Jesus says, he's the one on the throne and he opens the kingdom of God and he shuts the kingdom of God. Nobody else. In Matthew's gospel, we see part of Jesus' rebuke against the Jewish establishment, was that especially the elites, they sat in the position of the Old Covenant to open and close access to God and his word. And he said to those teachers, who really had the keys of the kingdom in that sense, he said to them in Matthew 23, verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the door of heaven in people's faces, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow others who would enter to go in. So Jesus is saying with this change of covenant, there is a new king in town. I am the one on the throne. I open the doors of the kingdom. And now, now the standard is nothing. The Jews had loved this idea of the, the, being in the kingdom was a VIP club. It was a members lounge. It was being at the top. It was being at the in the aristocracy. It was... This idea of being friends with God while everybody else was the drudge of the earth was a a prideful badge for them. And Jesus is saying that while they had tried to make the standard so high so that anybody in is in and impressive, Jesus came and made the standard so low that the most vile, worthless, outside sinners can come running into the open doors. Because the standard was so high to enter the kingdom of God that only God could satisfy it. Only God could achieve the opening of that door. No human being however have a righteous, however holy, however sanctified, however much of scripture you have memorized, no human being was ever going to be able to open the ancient doors to take us back into the presence of God and his rule. But Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came as divine God, met the standards of the law which judged us, Satisfied the standards of God's, satisfied God's wrath, which stood against us, and then opened for us through the veil of his body. By dying for our sins and resurrecting into eternal life, he has now opened up and made the standard absolutely flat. The only rule to be able to get into the kingdom is that you are a sinner and you trust in Jesus. If you do that, then you can come into this great swung open door of grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the one question. Are you a sinner? Will you trust in Jesus Christ? There are no other standards or requirements. I wonder where you are tonight. If you are are in fact like the Jews of Philadelphia standing on the outside, commending yourself, insulting others, critiquing others, judging others and everybody else, in fact looking for something in you to be a standard to enter God's kingdom, or whether you are somebody who has recognized your utter poverty, your utter unrighteousness and sin, and you have thrown yourself on the merciful arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only way into the kingdom of Jesus. Nothing can shut the kingdom to those to whom Jesus Christ has opened it. So we've seen Jesus in his introduction. That's just verse 7. But we're also going to see Jesus' gracious use of his conquering people. There's two elements here. We've seen Jesus. Now we're going to see his conquering people, the Philadelphian church, And how he graciously uses them in his purposes. Let's read. It's going to be uh, in verse 8. He says, I know your works. Uh, Let me find it here. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one will be able to shut. Then he says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my name. Uh, Sorry, and yet you have kept my word, and have not denied my name. In this sense, what Jesus is commending, when he says, I know your works, I know how little and how weak and how useless you seem to be in the world's eyes, but I commend you because you have held fast my name. What he's saying is that they are persevering through persecution. That's the key marker of Philadelphia. That marks out their obedience and their righteousness and their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are ones who have been faithful throughout every difficulty. As as we saw in previous weeks, this church would have been planted at some point during the two and a half years that, uh, that Paul was in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Paul was preaching, Paul was ministering, and probably he sent guys out. Maybe he went and visited all of these towns that we're now reading about, but they were all planted out when Paul was preaching in Ephesus. And, and they had been saved then, they had planted a church then, and since then have not compromised. They've remained fast and sure In Jesus. The power of the church is that they have kept his word and not denied his name. This is what defines the standing or the falling of any church. Whether or not we hold fast to the word of God or whether we fall by embarrassment, bit by bit by bit, until we deny all that God would have us say. Philadelphia had been faithful. Many things are outside of the church's power. Philadelphia knew this. We need to know this. Many things are outside of our power. How much money we have in the bank. How many people are immediately in this room. How much influence we have in our current status in society. Who is ruling us in our nation. The state of the world politics and and, and wars and things like that. Natural disasters. We can't control all of those things. What we have been given responsibility over, what we can control, and therefore what is our true power is none of those other things but whether we stand fast, hold fast, and stand firm on the word of God and the name of Jesus Christ. That is what is ultimate. That is what marks a church out for success. That's been one of the main themes in the book of Revelation. That is why Paul, rather John, that is why John is on the island of Patmos in in being persecuted. Remember, for the testimony of the word of God. For the testimony of of Jesus Christ and the word of God, these same two threads, if we are faithful in them, then we are like Paul. We are like John. We are following in the great example that Jesus would put out before us in the church of Philadelphia. But look at verse 9. He said, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. So that would be physical Jews, religious Jews who have not believed in Jesus, therefore spiritually... They're not not true Jews, though they are ethnic Jews. Those people, behold, I will make them come down and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Look at verse 8. I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. So now Jesus is double using the meaning of that open door language. We saw earlier he was talking about the kingdom of God, the the door of the kingdom of God that he would open, now he's using the language of an open door in the same way as the rest of the New Testament uses the language of an open door. There are four times that the New Testament speaks of an open door, and it's always in the context of an opportunity for fruitful evangelism. So in Acts 14:27, it says that they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, it says, For a wide door of effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. That was Paul talking about why he's staying in Ephesus to preach. 2 Corinthians 2, 12, he says again, A door was opened for me in the Lord. And Colossians 4, verse 3 says, Pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So the language of an open door being given... By God to Christians is the language of an opportunity for zealous and fruitful evangelism. The reason I'm arguing that is because if we don't understand the Bible's use of that phrase, you're going to come to the language of "I will make your enemies come down and bow before you, and they will know that I have loved you," and it gets turned into a snide, cynical "you get 'em" kind of mentality. Those darn non Christians, those skeptics, those atheists, those feminists, those Buddhists, those witches, those whatever they're called, those other, there's a big spectrum of non Christians out there. And what's the promise? That if we're faithful, they all come bow down, realize they're damned, and we get to kick them into hell. Now, probably when you read that, you had some sense that, that, that that's kind of, You didn't say it like that. I know you would never do that. You're not that unholy or bitter. But when you read that, you probably thought that's the idea that Jesus will beat and judge and destroy the enemies in front of the church. And it's just exactly the opposite. Here's why when Jesus is saying here to the church that he is about to give them a great open door, he is saying to them, I'm going to give you an opportunity for Christian conquering, which is evangelism. This is the Christian warfare. Not primarily, not even at all, that we slay our enemies but that we preach to our enemies so that they die and rise in Jesus Christ. That is the most effective, that is the most central way that the New Testament sees the kingdom of God growing and the kingdom of Satan falling and the enemies of God dying and reducing in number, is you convert them. Paul loved this. Send me in a pagan city, I'll preach to them and I'll make a church out of them. Throw me in prison, I'll... Convert your, your, your security guard too. And then at t- towards the end of his life, he's saying, also, say good day to the guys who are living in Caesar's household. Yet Nero had people in his backyard doing Bible studies. It is unstoppable what happens when a church evangelizes with faith. And so what we're seeing here is Jesus promising a great evangelistic conversion occurrence among the Jewish population of Philadelphia. Let's read. Jesus says, Behold, I will make them, verse 9, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Who? Verse 9 has told us, those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not and lie. That is, the Jews who had rejected Christ as we've said multiple times. Now we've got to go for a deep dive into the Old Testament for a moment, back into Isaiah. I hope you've got your hats on, you're ready for it. Isaiah 45, 49 and 60 are going to give us some clues. This language of the enemies of God coming and bowing down before God's people. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 14. Isaiah 45, verse 14, in the last half of that verse, he's speaking to the Jewish people about the Gentiles. He says this, They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you. And there is no other, no God besides him. Isn't that exactly what Jesus' theme has been so far? Then Isaiah 49, verse 23. Chapter 49, verse 23. God has prophesied saying to the Jews, kings shall come and be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust off your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Now go to Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 14. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 14. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion, the Holy One of Israel. Now, in the immediate application, here's what that meant for the Jews. God was prophesying that he would bring the Gentiles, their enemies, to the Jews in subjugation such that the Gentiles would be saying, you have the true God. We've been fighting the people of the true God. You have the true We will bow down with you and at your feet and worship Your God. Now that was in fact fulfilled not with some Old Testament mighty revival before Jesus' coming, but in fact in Jesus' coming. Such that Jesus comes and the Gentiles press in, as Jesus says, they press into the kingdom. As the Great Commission spreads and the, and the gospel goes around the empire, the Gentiles come running to the Jewish God and saying, your God is our true God. Our idols are simply made of wooden plastic. You have the true God. And then Jesus flips it again and says, now, instead of promising the Jews that the Gentiles will come to their God, now he turns to the church and says, the Jews are going to come to you and say, the church has the true God. The Yahweh, the living King, Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus says. They will come, they'll bow down before you, those of the synagogue of Satan. Ethnic Jews will come to the church, recognize that I have loved you and worship among you. Jesus is promising a revival among the Jews if the church would be faithful to push further into persecution and not give up. This is an amazing mindset. It's Jesus not just saying he's going to use the church in the evangelism of the Jews, but he's speaking of it in the language of reward. You've been so faithful, I'm going to reward you with being able to evangelize. Sometimes we just think that evangelism is the drudgery work of the the Christian life. Do it, there might be rewards. When Jesus, now sometimes that's true and you've got to push through, but Jesus is saying, and he wants us to see, that being used in the salvation of others is a reward for the faithful, those who press on. Those who keep their mind on Jesus' kingdom and his gospel above our own preferences, above our own riches, and above our own little petty empires. Those who want to live comfortably in this life for yourself Call yourself a Christian, have fun. You won't be welcome here. You'll get pretty sick of us because we're running ahead and Jesus has rebukes for you. But if you want to emphasize, prioritize, and follow in the steps of Jesus Christ himself and seek to build a church and extend the kingdom of Jesus, then to you, Jesus offers the great reward. You will be used in the eternal salvation of multiple people, of many people, of uncountable people. This is part of the, the Christian mindset. In fact, it challenges us how we view the outside world. Do we look at our neighbors and our skeptical friends and our cousins and our mother-in-law and whatnot, and do we see those unsaved people and think that they're they're the untouchables, they're the deplorables, they're the disgusting ones, they're they're the ones on the outside for good reason, to whom we might begrudgingly sometimes evangelize? Or do we see them as future brothers and sisters, hopefully, do we bleed? Do our, do our knees go callous as we kneel and pray that God would use us and give us the delight of being used to see their souls saved? This challenges how we look at people on the outside. There is no one who has ever offended you, mistreated you, or abused you enough for you to be glad that they are outside of Jesus Christ. Every one of us has to come to the Lord and demand from Him that He would give to us a heart in line with this blessing. Lord, make me somebody who prays for that. Make me somebody who that would be the greatest thing this side of heaven that I could ever receive. After being saved, then being used for other people to meet my Savior and Lord, the King, Jesus Christ. This should be the heart of the church. And then we see Jesus' gracious protection of his conquering people. So for those who are conquering, he's saying, I'll use you for redeeming many of the Jewish population. And then he also promises to them a protection from their ultimate enemy. Look at verse 10 and 11. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, so about suffering and persevering, because you've kept my word about that, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. What Jesus is not referring to here is the removal of his church out of the world before a, judge, a worldwide judgment because this is applying to Philadelphia. What Jesus is saying to them is not even, and, and also how much of a disjoint would it be from the rest of the letter if at this point Jesus says, and you won't have to suffer for me. I'm going to break now." I think the trial that he's talking about and the trial upon the whole world is probably things that they're going to experience in their Uh, in their uh, 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 generation and in their area Uh, John MacArthur speaks of this and says the world doesn't always mean the entire planet it could be their known world, their locale it's revelation, words don't always mean their literal things Uh, it could be the socio-political wars and famines and pestilences that that happened between then and 8070. it could mean something that we don't have recorded in scripture that happened to Philadelphia, we don't know here's the point though Jesus is about to pour out something that would be a trial and a test and a a judgment on those who dwell on the earth, around the Philadelphians. But the Philadelphian Christians are going to escape or be kept from the trial. Now, do we really think Jesus is saying, persecute, persecute, get killed all day and night to everybody else in Revelation, but Philadelphia gets a prosperity gospel promise that they get to never suffer? Absolutely not. Rather, what he's saying is, you will go through the same event, but you will be kept from the trial. Or, you will go through the same event, but be kept from my judgment in that. The reason I think that is the theme that Jesus is saying, when he says, I'll keep you from my pouring out of judgment, and he may mean you'll die, but I'll, but you're, that, that still counts as being kept from it, is because in Revelation 7, we see very similar language. Revelation 7 verse 14 John asks, who are all of these people in white garments around the throne who are living with the king? And the answer is, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. How are you allowed as a Christian to escape the tribulation or any persecution, which is what tribulation means? Dying, that's your only answer. Whenever God brings persecution to us, you're never allowed to turn around and hightail it. You only ever keep on going until they kill you. They may back down, but we don't back down. So when John sees this great multitude, he's like, who are these? And and the angel says, they're the ones who escaped. They're coming out of the tribulation. He's saying they're the dead ones. But he doesn't say that. Because what an insult to be in heaven and speak of that of death. Saying these are the ones escaping the judgment. These are the ones persevering and coming out of, being kept from the hatred and wrath of God onto the earth. They, they're upgrading, they're promoting, they're escaping. I think that is what Jesus means here when he says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I'll keep you from the hour of trial or the time of trial, the, the part of that trial that is my wrath, and instead you will receive blessing and reward as you push on, and then I will bring you to myself so that you are not under judgment but under blessing and reward. And grace. Therefore, he says, hold fast to what you have so that no one may remove your crown. No one may seize your crown. In the Christian life, we have both a crown and a commission. We have been given a crown in the sense that we are reigning, ruling, discharging kingdom blessings of Jesus. But that goes hand in hand with the commission, You're not just given a crown to waltz around, look good, claim some kind of spiritual authority, zap a demon every now and then, get a healing when you want, etc., etc., and claim a promotion. What you've been given the crown for is the commission, which is the preaching, the bringing in, the praying, the the ministering in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. So those go together. That's why Jesus says, if you forsake your, your commission, you'll lose the crown, if you're a Christian who doesn't suffer and doesn't pray and doesn't evangelize, you'll be the Christian that doesn't have a crown that is no Christian at all because you're outside of the kingdom of Jesus. So hold fast lest they seize your crown. But right? don't, don't let even an earthly crown, don't let earthly income, earthly opportunity, earthly relationships, earthly sexual pleasure ever tempt you away from what Jesus has on offer. There is always a cost to sin. Whenever we give to ourselves give ourselves over to sin that has, comes with so many earthly blessings, it is at the cost of loyalty and royalty with Jesus. It is never worth it. And Jesus now gives these. He's promised protection over his people in that though we die, we will live. He's promised that he will use the faithful ones to evangelize their enemies. And he is promising that he is the one, the true one, the true God, as we started out, and now we see his gracious rewards for his conquering people. Those who don't let the crowns be seized. Those who do persevere in evangelism and perseverance, we see this great promise. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes out of heaven from my God, And my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This first promise is, of course, Old Testament themed, the language of the temple. Of course, it's flying in the face of their spiritual enemies at the time, which were the unconverted Jews, soon to be converted. He says, a pillar in the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it. The idea is permanence belonging and staying established by God. They will be built, they will be in the temple in such a permanent way, they're not a framed picture on the wall. They're not just a a candlestick off in a corner that could be carried out. We We are so fundamentally unified to God and in His temple such that to remove us would be to remove Himself because He has unified us to Him. And were He to break His promise to us and lose us, he would be breaking his promise and the promise of the gospel is bound up by his own unchangeable nature. Friend, your security in Christ is as permanent and real as the fact that God is God. You will be a permanent fixture in the temple. You will never go out. Though your enemies are saying to you, you're not worthy of the kingdom, you haven't achieved the kingdom, you, you shouldn't be in the kingdom, you're, you're a sinner, that, that doesn't make up a very, a very good kingdom. Though they would try and kill you, to remove you and curse you and persecute you, Jesus says... I have made the conquerors a pillar, immovable, strong, bearing weight. A Christless religion, like the Jews in the first century, but over and again throughout history, Christless religion, pick high church Anglicanism throughout history, pick Catholicism, pick all kinds of other pagan religions, Christless religion often sets up glorious architecture. Not sinful. They do so at the expense of the true glory. They rest on those things—the temples, the buildings, the pagodas, the great gold. They—they rest on those things as having some kind of heavenly significance. And Jesus is saying to the persecuted, small in number, low in power church, you will be a part of a great temple that you cannot see, that you must believe by faith, but is as sure as Jesus himself. What? Uh, There is eternal life and joy to be a pillar in God's temple. John says in chapter 21, verse 2 and 3, at the end of the book, he's seeing a vision and he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from my God, quoted from uh, Revelation 3. He says, it was prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. That's not a promise for heaven. It applies to heaven, absolutely. It is a promise of the now. Because Jesus is saying, those who overcome will be in my temple. You already have a crown that you shouldn't be stolen from. It's all, in some sense, present. The great temple that he sees with all of these themes, or he says, the angel says to him in John chapter, uh, sorry, Revelation 21, verse 9 and 10 and 11, the angel says, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Who is the wife of the Lamb? It's the church. What John is seeing is some kind of vision analogous to the church, not just us in heaven. He says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God. Verse 22 And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb, but its light will uh, sorry, but by its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, recalling Isaiah's prophecy of the nations coming to Jesus. And its gates will never be shut recalling back to Jesus' promise of always opening and only shutting what he wishes. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor those who do what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. If we take that all literally, it has to be some kind of enormous, giant, metal city in the future in which we are, temple, we are pillars in a temple that doesn't exist. Or, if taken figuratively, not cheaply, not, 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 not cheap exegesis, but spiritual truths culminating in Jesus and his people, the church, and what Jesus is saying is, you'll be in my temple, which is my people with me. One word for that? Church. Not just a service, not just a building, the, the called out to belong to Jesus. That is what the church means. The ecclesia, the called out ones to belong to him, to gather with him. We are, in that sense now, joining Christ in that glorious temple. Unity with God, that's what's being shown. You will be made one with God. You'll be a brick, a pillar in the temple of God. And then he says, which is just an upgrade on that, if you can imagine it, an upgrade on that in depth of unity is that Jesus gives to us multiple names which are in some sense all the same name. Firstly, he says, I'll give you God's name, the name of my God. And then he says, I'll give you the city's name, which is the New Jerusalem, which is the city coming out of heaven from my God. And then thirdly, he says, I'll give you my own name. Now, to ask what's the name is to miss the point. The point is not that we've figured out the letters and we know what the word is, which makes the name that is given to us. The point is, did you read whose names those are? God's name. The name of the place where God meets man and then the God-man's name imprinted on us. Later on in Revelation, you see the, the name of the beast put on people as a sign of ownership. It's a spiritual language for you belong to me. You're allegiant to me. You belong and everything you do is under me. Now Jesus is saying... Those who overcome, you'll be in my temple. You will be the city. I will be called your God. You will be called the name of my God and you will have my own name. That's just a a trifecta of glorious, albeit confusing, promises. The name given to us in this, this Old Testament symbol of ownership and love and protection and unity where literally the wife of the lamb takes the lamb's name to herself. So, we have to close here with the recognition that these promises are not to the spiritually adept. These promises are not to those who can achieve enough to impress Jesus, who can who can show some kind of lineage in your family or in your church achievement. These promises for the overcomers is to those who repent of their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, that is the only thing that makes a great church like Philadelphia, and that is the only thing that makes a person right before God able and willing and worthy to receive all of these promises. Have you believed? Have you turned from the world and the, and, the, and the wasting pleasures and treasures that it tries to offer and thrown your life, opened your heart, given your faith and your allegiance to Jesus who died for your sin so that you can be forgiven, rose from the dead so that you can live forever and now reigns in heaven where he calls us to himself with holes in his hands. Come and be united to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, time just runs away from us, runs away from us as we try to unpack all of the glories and all of the layers of the prophecies and the fulfillments in Jesus and the, and the great gifts and blessings that are, that are being thrown out at us at 100 miles an hour out of this great passage. But Lord God, so it is that your word is, is given to us so that generation after generation and millennia after millennia, we will continue to behold the glories that you have revealed in your Word. May the great and grand picture of the Bible, may the great and grand picture of redemption as we've told it in some portion tonight, not allow us to miss out on the individual necessity of repentance and faith, Lord Jesus Christ. There are individuals in the room who are still in their sin and impressed with the the picture and impressed with the story and impressed with the ideas of the eternal world. Lord God, would you take their mind off those things and put it directly to, are they in Christ. Are their sins forgiven? Father God, would you convert individuals because that is how you build your temple, your holy, your holy city, your, your, your church, your bride? Would you give faith to those who do not have faith so that they can repent of their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? We pray, Lord, for those who, like in the church of Philadelphia, know you. Would you make us zealous in our obedience? Would you make us expectant of opposition in a world that hates Jesus? And would you make us faithful in those moments so that we are never compromising, walking backwards, throwing our crown to the side for the sake of trinkets, but rather God. Would you give us a spiritual wisdom to see when there is compromise occurring? And would you give to us a spiritual boldness to persevere through those temptations and trials so that we can glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, the great example of the persecuting church, our Savior, the good news, the Lamb, And the ruling lion, it is in his name that we pray all of these things. And everybody said, Amen.